Summer is here, and so is our summer reading show. This year, we asked guests to tell us about some of their favorite childhood books that they were later shocked to find have sometimes been banned. And they had a lot to say from the wild things of our youth. So this story, when I read this story, it was me. It was my story. You know, not only the fantasy of going to the world where the wild things are, but also coming back and everything's okay instead of I'm still in trouble. To a lesser known poet from the hills and hollers of Appalachia. Yeah, I know that when I'm like out somewhere, you know, away from the region, if I if I hear the twang, I pick up on it, and we look at each other and we say, where are you from, where are you from? Like two hours away, oh yeah, I know exactly where you're talking about. It, it's home, it is. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today we're keeping your pages turning. My first guest is Jessica Mullins-Fullen. Jessica likes to say she was born, bred, and cornbread fed in the hills and hollers of southern Appalachia. She knew from her own experience that Appalachia was more diverse than people think, but she still struggled to find space for herself. In her youth, Jessica saw herself reflected in the pages of young adult novels. Jessica graduated from the University of Virginia College at Wise with a bachelor's degree in theater. While studying at Wise, Jessica learned about early 20th century Black poet Effie Waller-Smith, who'd grown up just 15 minutes away from where Jessica had been raised. Jess, tell me about the poet Effie Waller-Smith, when she lived and what she wrote about. Okay, yeah, so Effie Waller-Smith was born in January of 1879. Um, She lived and grew up and worked in Pike County, Kentucky, which is far southeast Kentucky. Um, And she was the daughter of two formerly enslaved people. Um, Her mother had been enslaved in Pike County, where they lived, and her father had been enslaved in Virginia. He made his way into Kentucky after the Civil War. Um, And her parents really, really valued education. Neither of them could read or write, but they ensured that their children would have those things um, and have that privilege. So Effie grew up surrounded by education, Um, And she would go on to write quite a bit about nature. How'd you feel about her when you first came across her? Um, You know, I was kind of gobsmacked, to be honest. You know, I am a mixed Black woman from Letcher County, Kentucky. And Effie Waller-Smith lived 15 to 20 minutes away from where I grew up. And... And so it was hard for me to reconcile them for a long time. I felt like, okay, I understand that I'm this little black girl, but how can I be both that and Appalachian? And I was deeply going through a period of self-discovery and to find out that there had been this really quite prolific writer right down the road for me that I had never heard of, that my friends had never heard of, that wasn't being taught in schools. Um, Someone who I consider, you know, the type of individual that really tells the truth of the region, of what we look like, what we sound like, um, who we are. Again, I was gobsmacked that I had never heard of this person. And now I've made it my mission to, like, tell everyone. Did she write mostly about the beauty and customs of her life in Appalachia? Or did she also write about feelings? She did write about feelings. Um, Her writing is overwhelmingly positive because it's a reflection or supposed to be a reflection of how the natural beauty and lushness of this place make her feel at peace. However, she went through some really heavy stuff. You can kind of piece together that there was likely some melancholy in her. And at one point, um, she has a poem called At Pool Point. She's outside. She's in um, what is now known as the Brakes Interstate Park. She was in Kentucky and she's talking about how like she could, she loves this place. She loves the beauty. But because she's sad, sometimes she thinks maybe she should just throw herself into the water. I mean, when I first read that, it, I was taken aback because I was like, oh, 
I mean, there it is. Effie also wrote about, at one point, one of my favorite poems is The Bachelor Girls. And she was actually inspired to write about them when she left to go to um, the Kentucky Normal School for Colored Persons in Frankfurt. So she did spend two years outside of the region in young adulthood um, getting her teaching licensure. She would return and teach in mountain schools. But in that poem, she talks about these Black women that she came to know and love who were like, I struggle to use the word suffragist because during that wave of feminism, Black women were largely barred from the suffrage movement. You know, Black women didn't get the right to vote until long after white women had the right to vote. But she's talking about these women who were living their lives like bachelors and they weren't concerned with getting married and they weren't concerned with doing housework. You know, they were playing sports and they were learned on all the things that, if he uses the word, all the schemes and tricks that politicians use. Uh, she knows full well and she can tell of them with eloquence, her views. And so it's sort of like this meditation on these super cool women in 1901 and 1902 that really influenced her for the rest of her life. I agree with you. I loved that poem that I saw you perform when you performed the Ellie Waller-Smith monologue. This was a monologue written by Robin Irwin and Eric Buckley based on research by Kentucky historian David Deskins. Have other lines of poems stayed with you, having memorized and performed them so many times? Oh, yeah. You know, you probably saw the applesauce and chicken fried poem. That was another one. I loved it. The other one was My Native Mountains. I have said, like, I, I could probably write a dissertation about this. Like, I want to research this more. I just need a sabbatical. But Effie, during her lifetime, had been compared to Paul Lawrence Dunbar, who was another really prolific and quite famous African-American contemporary writer of hers. And while he has received quite a bit of acclaim, even up until now, Effie was still rather unknown. However, the people that knew her and knew of her works compared her to him. And people were saying about Paul Lawrence Dunbar that he was a dialectal poet, um, which means that you could read his poetry and hear the cadence and the the community from which he was working from, sort of that, uh, the cultural cadence and voice from which mm. he was working from. And yes. I, I say the same for Effie because like, uh, let's say an applesauce and chicken fried, she says, our farmer's girls know how to fix their dainty dishes rare, but friend, just let me tell you what, nothing can compare. I can't tell you how many times in my life I have had someone <laughs> say, let me tell you what, just like that. Like, yeah. I hear it. I hear it. And in my native mountains, there's a stanza where she says, um, how oft amongst these mountains has a silvery music clear from the lark's throat cheer the traveler or the honest mountaineer. You know, if you, if you didn't know, that's how you would read it. But a phrase that I've heard a lot is, oh, it was clear over there. And so when I read that stanza in my head and from the voice that Effie and I both are accustomed to, I hear how oft amongst these mountains has the silvery music clear from the lark's throat cheer the traveler or the honest mountaineer. You know, there's these, these punches that I can associate with because we've known and grown up with and speak from the same type of voice. You know, don't we crave that? All yeah. of us have these these phrases and bits of language and accents from the people we've known and loved. Mm -hmm. And when mm -hmm. we hear them again, especially when we're out of our element, they touch something deep inside of us. Yeah, I know that when I'm like out somewhere, you know, away from the region, if I if I hear the twang, I pick up on it, and we look at each other and we say, where are you from? Where are you from? And like two hours away. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know exactly where you're talking right. about. It, it's home. It is. Tell me a little bit about where you were raised. I've read that you like to say you were born and bred and cornbread fed in the hills right. and hollers of southern Appalachia. That's <laughs> right. That's me. Born, bred, and cornbread fed. I would um, trademark that, but I want everybody to be able to say it, so I'm going to do that. <laughs> you grew up in coal camp housing? 
I did. I did. I grew up in a coal camp in Far East Kentucky in Letcher County. It's really interesting. Um, in a coal camp, all the houses will look exactly the same. They were constructed for to have housing. So when workers moved in, there would be housing for the people, the hundreds and thousands of people who would be there to mine coal. You were a big fan of Sherman Alexie's book called The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian. When did you come across that? Were you a youngster? Maybe in ninth or 10th grade when I read it for the first time. How did it hit you? You know, I just thought it was beautiful because for the first time, probably, I started, when I think back at least, I started actively drawing lines um, between the experiences of impoverished folk, but also I didn't have the language to articulate this at the time, but drawing lines and making comparisons between um, the intersections of poverty and race um, and class. And I guess, you know, this book, it really hit me because I've... I, I was looking at the list of banned books, and when I saw that book, I was like, why? I was shocked that it was on the on a banned books list. I was shocked. Right. It's presented in a way, and it's presented through the point of view of a kid, you know, who was my age at the time, so it's a young adult novel, so a lot of young adults will be able to identify with this person that's the same age as them, and they're going through things like they're not fitting in. Some of the heavier stuff is really just woven into the narrative because it's literally just their reality. And it's this young person finding agency and navigating their reality for the first time. And it, it's not like it's giving big dissertations. It's not like it's preachy. It, it just is. And that's one reason, thinking back, why I loved the book so much. And that's one reason now why I'm shocked that it's on a banned book list. It just is. And it's the truth of so many people who live in these situations and are navigating them, young people. It's sort of amazing because it was a National Book Award winner. It's a graphic novel with lots of comic illustrations in it and a very charming narrator who's just talking about his goofy life. He's sort of describing some really tragic things at the same time and trying to make sense of them, like kissing his little puppy goodbye and laying him down under a tree, and then hearing his father's blast from a shotgun as he puts him out of his misery because they're too poor to really go to a vet and do it some other way. Yeah, and again, I think it's important to recognize that this character is an Indigenous kid. And think about it like that, because in a lot of ways, the experiences that he is having is directly correlated to the to that group of people. And I think that's important to recognize. What are you reading now or who are you following? Um, I'm finishing up Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver. It's funny that like I'm talking about um, the absolutely true diary of a part-time Indian, but then now current day, I'm reading this book where it's it's similar in a lot of ways. The characters are the same age, you know, in Barbara Kingsolver's book. He's he's growing up, so it takes you from the point when he's in primary school to a point where he's in high school and a young adult, but. Again, he's just Damon. His name is Damon, but they call him Damon. He is just making, trying to make sense of things. Um, and it takes place in central Appalachia, in, in the coal fields. You're now a lead organizer for Southern Appalachian Mountain Stewards. It is super fulfilling because I'm surrounded by a group of people who are like-minded. It's, you know, a volunteer-led organization, and everyone's on the same page, and we all want the same things, which is a just and equitable future for this region because justice for Appalachia means justice for everyone. If we can get through this stuff, you know, everybody can work. Jessica Mullins Fullen, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. Jessica Mullins Fullen is a graduate of the University of Virginia College at Wise. 
She's now the lead organizer for Southern Appalachian Mountain Stewards. My next guest is Vic Sizemore. He's an English professor at Central Virginia Community College in Lynchburg and the author of Goodbye, My Tribe, An Evangelical Exodus. Growing up, Vic Sizemore found himself in trouble both at home and in school, so he'd drift away into literature where the other wild things were. Vic, just about everybody loves where the wild things are, but you said it was especially important to you as a child, and you really needed it as an escape. Well, I was, um, as a child, I was very active. I was rambunctious, and it would be called today ADHD, but, you know, they didn't have that term for it then, and I was in trouble a lot. My desk in grade school from first grade on, my desk was regularly dragged back beside the teacher's desk, and that's where I sat, separated from the rest of the class. And in third grade, my teacher was so exasperated with me, she dragged my desk out into the hallway and left me there for long enough that I almost was held back because I didn't do my work. I ran up and down the hallway. So Mm. I was a a kid who was in trouble um, a lot for reasons I I didn't understand. In addition to that, I had a pretty complicated relationship with my mother. She was a very unhappy person. So when I read this story, it was me. It was my story. So it really did resonate with me. You know, not only the fantasy of going to the world where the wild things are, but also coming back and finding when you come back from that, everything's okay. Everything is as it should be instead of I'm still in trouble. So that's how it really was meaningful to me. That's so powerful. Remind me about Max and the wild things. The book begins with him being punished for being, you know, for acting out? Yes. This is one of the reasons it was so meaningful to me. He's not really acting out. He's playing. He's being rambunctious. He's wearing a wolf costume and acting like he's a wolf. And he's chasing the dog, (laughs) acting like he's a wolf. And his mother calls him a wild thing. And he yells, I'll eat you up. And for that, he's sent to bed without eating his dinner. (laughs) And then what happens? How does it play out? In his imagination, he sails far away. He does. He sails. Well, first of all, the room itself turns into a forest slowly. Then a boat sails up. It has his name on it. He gets in. He sails to the land where the wild things are. And it's frightening. And in one of the pictures, he actually looks frightened a little bit. But then he steals himself and... He tells them to be quiet, and they are. Or he says, be still, and, and they are still, and he, and he tames them. And then he gets to be the king of the wild things. They have a wild rumpus, and he gets lonely and wants to be where somebody loves him most. He gets back in his boat, sails back, and his mother has decided to give him dinner after all. It's there on the table in his bedroom. Such an accepting, loving thing that you yearned for yourself. Yes, it is. You know, the the books that are being banned today, these are kids who feel othered as well. And, you know, in a very different way, of course, I don't understand their experiences in the same way. But it is is something that, you know, resonates with, it will eternally resonate with children who feel who feel othered for whatever reason, you know, that this longing to be loved. And, you know, the fantasy, a lot of kids who read this, the fantasy that, you know, one of these days I'm going to wake up and and the ugly part of my life, the thing that is is causing me to be unhappy is going to be gone. That is that is a really powerful ending to the book. You grew up looking back Would you have pulled that desk up next to yours or put it out in the hallway, do you think? No, no, I wouldn't have. But I do, as a as an educator, I do have sympathy for my teachers. They were they were not equipped to deal with me. And, you know, my third grade teacher, she had a classroom full of kids and she she had choices to make. And um, and she didn't make the right choice, but this was a rural town that there just weren't a lot of resources. And, and frankly, people didn't really know 
you know, the, the, the behavior I exhibited was just called being disobedient or being bad. So would I have back then? I don't know. I, w- I certainly wouldn't now. Another very popular series for older young people is the His Dark Materials trilogy by Philip Pullman. Have you read that? And what do you make of it being controversial? Yes, I have read it. I read it as an adult, and I really, really liked it. I, you know, one fantasy trilogy, or actually it's more than a trilogy now, is Ursula Gwynn's Earthsea trilogy, and I I really loved that. And I would say that I, I rank His Dark Materials right up there as well. And the title, His Dark Materials, is from John Milton's Paradise Lost. And it draws a lot from Paradise Lost in that there is a one of the main characters. It's not the protagonist, but it is one of the main characters takes on the role of Satan in Paradise Lost as a rebel who is going to challenge the authority who is in this trilogy. The authority is the God figure. It isn't God. It's someone who claims to be God, but it is the God figure in the trilogy. So that really is something that I found meaningful. That is the main plot line. Is, is what? I mean, is, is demonizing it is, it is, Satan? <laughs> it is a, it is, well, actually it is, it is making Satan a hero. You know, the, the Satan in Paradise Lost, interestingly enough, even though John Milton um, didn't mean it to be the case, Satan is a rebel, a par- parliamentarian who is standing up against, you know, the authoritarian um, king, if you will, which is, you know, John Milton himself was a parliamentarian. He opposed the king. Lord Azrael, who is this character in His Dark Materials, is doing the same thing. He has decided he's through through science and through knowledge, he is going to find a way to challenge and defeat the authority who is through the magisterium, which is, which is the Catholic Church in this world. Um, and the and the political authority, both, he is going to bring down the magisterium that controls people's lives, and he's going to free everyone from from the control of the authority and the magisterium. You can see why religious advocates who were opposed to the book hated that it depicted the Catholic God as vindictive, right? Yes. Oh, yes, definitely. I can. And, you know, it's also true that if you go particularly to the Old Testament, it is it is easy to draw that conclusion. Yet I read that the former Archbishop of Canterbury came to its defense and said that really what he's criticizing in the trilogy is the use of religion to oppress, but not religion itself or Christianity itself. He definitely is criticizing the use of religion to oppress, but, but Philip Pullman himself has no use for religion and and said so in interviews more than once. His his target really is the misuse of religion, that's true. You've had an experience with banned books when you were much younger. Tell me about that. This was when you were living in West Virginia? Yes, I was I was living in Elkview, West Virginia, which is in Kanawha County, and at that time, this was the mid-70s, at that time the uh, Kanawha County textbook controversy happened and this was when the Kanawha County School Board adopted a curriculum that uh, conservatives objected to for the content in the textbooks. And I mean, for instance, one of the things that was objected to was um, a history book had had a quote, um, uh, Malcolm X quote about why he, he wasn't a Christian and things of that nature. And it got so heated that people were shooting at the school board building and somebody tried to set off an explosive. It just got, it got violent. And the superintendent had to close down school for a couple of weeks just to try to let things cool off. And in that time, during that time, a lot of pastors, a lot of conservative pastors uh, just started Christian schools in their churches. And I ended up in one of those Christian schools. And Interestingly enough, that is where there was a um, outside of the school in an old house um, out by the road. 
uh, someone, uh, I don't know who, but a bunch of people had donated books for a library. And there was no there was no rhyme or reason to the books in there. They hadn't organized them in any way yet. But the, my teacher took us there. I was in sixth grade. My teacher took us there and told us to find a book to read and write a book report on. And the book that I discovered <laughs> was A Clockwork Orange by Anthony Burgess. And I... Oh, my gosh. It, right. it, it fascinated me, of course, and and I did read it and, and, you know, understood it as best I could because it's a difficult book because of the language. And, but I did, I did get a general idea of what was going on in the book. And, and it was just ironic that, you know, I was taken out of the public schools because of the textbooks, but then it was at the, at this private Christian school where I discovered A Clockwork Orange. Which is filled with gratuitous violence and sexual assault and profanity. Oh, absolutely it is, which is, I was a 12-year-old boy. I was (laughs) taken with it. What do you make of this? Don't you think that there are books that would tempt any one of us to wish them banned if they hit too close to home? on things that are near and dear to our hearts? I Yeah. Flannery O'Connor, you know, beloved Southern short story writer. Some of her material hasn't aged well, let's put it that way, for reasons of depiction of race and language referring to race. And so it's really difficult to know what to do with that. But, you know, I would never want to have them banned. Or would you? I don't think so. And yeah. one reason, I, I read a an opinion piece in the New York Times a few years ago, and I think it was a good way to describe it. And he said that a student had refused to read one of the books that he assigned, and the student's reasoning was, I'm not going to have that in my house. And huh. what his response was, it, that's the wrong way to look at it. You want to look at things, even things that you find offensive, you want to think of them not as things you bring into your house, but as museums that you go into to look around and see this is what this was like, this is how this person thought, or this is how people think. So, no, I wouldn't want to ban anything, but you do want, when you go into those places, particularly as a teacher, you do want to do it carefully and you want to, you know, obviously there are, there are things that are inappropriate for certain populations, but I, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to ban anything. Vic Sizemore, thank you for talking with me today and with good reason. Thank you. Vic Sizemore is an English professor at Central Virginia Community College in Lynchburg and author of Goodbye, My Tribe, an Evangelical Exodus. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. Today we're talking about banned books. My next guest is Maynard Scales. As a young man, he was looking for answers when he came across James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time from 1963. Baldwin's letter to his nephew in that book felt like he was speaking directly to young Maynard Scales himself. Maynard is now general manager of Norfolk State University's radio station, WNSB Hot 91.1 FM. Maynard, what was it that made The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin such an important book for you when you were younger? When I first read The Fire Next Time, and it starts with my dungeon shook, you know, those who are familiar uh, know that it is a letter from James Baldwin to James, his nephew, and he is telling him. This is what life in America is going to be for you. And it is the beating of the fist against, you know, these things about equality, racism, and the justice system, and, you know, how hard the uphill climb that he's trying to leave this record for his nephew. And, you know, he was just speaking directly to me. And I just, the tone is... Hey, let me t- let me talk to you. Let me tell you something. This is what's happening. Would you read us an excerpt from that essay? Yes, the fire next time has two essays, but my dungeon shook is the first. The second to last paragraph begins. This innocent country sets you down in the ghetto in which, in fact, it intended that you should perish. 
You were born into a society which spelled out with brutal clarity and in many ways as possible that you were a worthless human being. You were not expected to aspire to excellence. You were expected to make peace with mediocrity. And, and that's just kind of a, you know, that's not the, the whole piece, but, you know, I thought about just that back then as a young man, for instance, like, you know, I was told there's been so much progress and, you know, what are you, what are you so anxious about? Things are getting better. And what he's saying is, even though all these struggles have occurred, even though all this headway seemingly has occurred, the rules are set against you. The game is rigged. And even when you feel like it's winning, you look up and you realize there's a whole other game being played. I'm not even playing the same game that they are. What did it feel like to you as a young man to hear that? Was it more depressing? Or did you feel freed because you were hearing a truth that you recognized? I wouldn't say depressing. It did create a frustration. It did create a passion where I really was thinking to myself, how do you, how do you get further ahead? Like, can I run faster to catch up? James Baldwin was writing right in the midst of the civil rights movement when a lot of people were expressing hope and faith and optimism and belief that things will get better. He was very clear that he thought they had not gotten better and were unlikely to. Yes. Um, this hope that things are getting better and will get better um, and this civil rights leadership was largely in, in the form of people like Dr. Martin Luther King, in the form of people like Bayard Rustin, in the form of people like Malcolm X and the like. And, you know, he has in the second essay a great indictment on the failings of the commercialism of faith, that the Black church, the Black Muslim experience is this just keep fighting, just keep on, have blind faith, uh, be obedient. And he's saying that blind obedience to this church, to this mosque, to these systems where we as African-Americans had put our hopes for leadership in is winning certain things for them, but not for the whole. It's just not trickling down, and therefore we're not getting ahead. You've thought of this work by James Baldwin, The Fire Next Time, as being in conversation with the more recent book by ta Coates, who wrote Between the World and Me. And I believe ta Coates has said that he was struck by the way Baldwin wrote with clear eyes and without any fantasy about race in America. Yeah, I, you know, so Between the World and Me is this conversation that ta Coates, this love letter, th these memoirs, this book of instruction to his son. And so is uh, My Dungeon Shook in the Fire Next Time. And it is the, you know, the beating against the brick wall of all these kinds of injustices and inequalities and these warnings about, you know, don't, don't fall for this trick or don't make these mistakes or what have you that ta Coates is teaching his son that James Baldwin is t teaching his nephew, that before them, Paul Robeson is teaching African-Americans, that Nat Turner is doing uh, as a part of the slave revolt, that Harriet Tubman, that and it goes on and it goes on and it goes on, um, that we have been trying to teach each other or, or teach our children. I'm teaching Marley, my daughter, hey, you know, here are the pitfalls that exist. The shameful part is, you know, why do we still have to teach these same lessons? And what lessons are we teaching? That the world is dominated by a white culture that is indifferent to, at best, the Black population? Yes. And I think one of the challenges of why this teaching has been kind of incomplete is that, by and large, in America, we talk about it as an American problem. But it is a global problem worldwide problem. You know, ta Coates came to believe 
that if you take away the religious rhetoric of hope and dreams and progress, all we have left are systems of white supremacy. And he says no real evidence that those systems are changing. Would you say you share that bleak view? Can you possibly afford to share it? Um, no, I'm hopeful. I'm, I'm very hopeful. Uh, I don't have, I, I think um, my hope and my faith is, is different from, um, I think, a lot of others who put, their, put a lot of hope and faith in what they read in a book or uh, what, you know, is given to them by God or the Bible or they find, find in church. Um, I'm fortunate to, you know, work in a college setting and be around young minds every day. And I tell you, the young men and women I see, they amaze me at their brilliance, their bravery, uh, you know, being 52 and, and being around 20-year-olds who are like, oh, you know, we'll just we'll just start a business tomorrow. Oh, that failed. <laughs> we'll start another one. Who cares? We'll do it. Look, I'm just going to move to California with $5 in my pocket. Like that bravery <laughs> is gives me so much hope. And so I'm so proud of the young people I'm around because, uh, you know, in some ways, some of the baggage um, that comes with being from a certain time in America, they don't have. And that's amazing. And I'm happy for them. I'm excited for them. And I know that the future, albeit slow, will bear new and fresher and greener fruit. Maynard Scales, what a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you so very much. This has been amazing. Maynard Scales is the general manager of Norfolk State University's radio station WNSB Hot 91.1 FM and the father of Marley. There are tens of thousands of political prisoners in Egypt, but Allah Abdul Fattah is the political prisoner there. He's also a dear friend of my next guest, Sarah Rifke. She was concerned that the publication of his book called You Have Not Yet Been Defeated would only make him more of a target. And maybe it has, but it's also become a way for people to rally around his case. Sarah Rifke is the senior curator at Virginia Commonwealth University's Institute for Contemporary Art. Producer Lauren Francis caught up with Sarah in Richmond to talk about Ala Abdul Fattah's book. Ala Abdul Fattah is, uh, well, he's my friend. He's a software developer, a techie, comes from a family that cares deeply about human rights mm -hmm. and sort of has always been an activist in that sense. He was one of the very early bloggers in Egypt, like when we were growing up, when we were in high school, like early, like 90s, early 2000s. And he's been in and out of prison a few times throughout the, since the mid-2000s, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, he had been arrested in 2014, being charged for protesting against a new protest law, or a law that was mm -hmm. basically criminalizing protests. So he served five years in prison for expressing his protest against the criminalization of people speaking up. Mm. He came out in 2019 and he was sort of still serving parole, meant that he would have to spend 12 hours every day locked up in a police station wow. without access to phone or internet or anything mm -hmm. um but he was sort of adjusting and in the little time that he had every day he was working on collecting his previous writing as well as writing new essays um, trying to suture time make sense of the failures of the revolution um, but also writing a lot on his experience in prison. By by August, so August September of 2019, he sort of really had a proposal in place, and this was really going to be his sort of full time project. Mm -hmm. 
but that was sort of interrupted when he was re-arrested pretty much at random in a wave of re-arrests. There was a scare, there would be more uprisings and sort of preemptively thousands of people got arrested and him among them. The human rights lawyer that showed up to defend him, Hamad um, al-Bakr, was also arrested and also is still in prison. Mm. Um, and so a couple of years ago, Alex's family and friends gradually started putting together the book and throughout the years when he was being held in remand detention without being tried, mm-hmm. uh, he managed to smuggle out some texts that he had been writing um, and other texts were uh, composed by also family and friends based on sort of short statements he would make when he made uh, his court appearances later on. Mm which he always used as an opportunity to really maybe poetically express himself, Mm -hmm. knowing that no other good was going to come out of those court hearings anyway. Um, So they became these kind of writing opportunities. What has been the reception of the book at home, like around him? So the book has been translated into Arabic, but it's, well, banned, I would say. No, it can't be distributed locally. He's really a nemesis to the state's leadership and Mm. um, its current dictator. I think the book has been sort of very widely celebrated globally and with many of us in diaspora very much. There hasn't been any opportunity really for its kind of extended open embrace under the current sort of political circumstances. Mm -hmm. I think uh, any expression in solidarity or in alignment with Zaleh uh, opens people up to further endangering oneself and one's families and so on. I think the book does circulate, but I think it's also very much on the down low. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Have you read it? <laughs> so many times. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd read many of the articles in time and I was also very involved with Ale over the summer of 2019 and so was also working a lot with him on edited reading and... Mm sharing feedback for his sort of recent pieces. And and yeah, and I've read it in many different ways and sometimes alone and sometimes with other people. What are some of like the passages and things that really stand out? I know I'm putting you on the spot. So So many things. I mean, there is a poem, like there's a poem that he first tweeted when he was released um, in the book and it's in Arabic. it's in Arabic, it's Ana Simu Ana Turyok, Ana Shabahir Rabialifit. And then the translation would be um, I am the poison, I am the antidote, I am the ghost of spring past. Wow. And there are other texts too. One of my favorite texts is um, on his uh, first visit to Gaza um, after the revolution together with his then uh, wife and uh, baby Khaled at the time. And while Egypt and Palestine are often quite close together, they're really, like, Palestine is really off limits. It's impossible to really go as an Egyptian. Um, But then after the revolution, there was, like, this moment of opening and it was possible to kind of cross the border, land border into, into Gaza. And... I think there is something extremely moving about this text which sort of demystifies um, our romantic relationship to Palestine but also is quite profound in, um, in, in thinking about how being in a place, in a certain place, can in itself be a radical form of learning. Hmm. Um, Tell me a bit about, you mentioned that you were kind of involved in bringing different elements of the book together. Tell me a bit about that process. Well, I think for full disclosure, I will have to say that I think when I first heard that the book was being put together, I was quite upset. Really? Yes. Why? Because he wanted to do it himself. Mm. And it felt like this was such a life project Mm -hmm. of like... He didn't want to do do it in such a sort of a straightforward manner. And he also was very careful to not want to become this sort of prisoner, martyr, hero right. figure. And we were talking a lot about how 
the different strategies editorially as a writer that mm -hmm. he would take to sort of really revisit um, his own writing over the past 20 years or so. And I think in us sort of presenting that book and in the way in which it was sort of coming together, which it's sort of preceded by a timeline um, that almost has a beginning and an end. And that sort of structure of time feels very finite in that sense. I mean, when this all this was happening, it was pretty early on, like he still hadn't been tried and we didn't know how long he's going to be in prison mm -hmm. for. And I think I was under the impression or the hope um, maybe the naive hope that he would soon be released mm -hmm. um, and that there would be an opportunity to really um, pick up where we left off and that he would have the opportunity to really work on his writing. And I also didn't foresee that the book in time would become like like a major tool to advocate for his freedom. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so the I mean, the book being distributed in all sorts of ways. So when his sister Senet comes in, for example, to the White House and talks to like different senators and stuff, mm -hmm. um, there's always the book as something that is given mm -hmm. to folks and like left behind. At moments when he's sort of gone through sort of a heightened hunger strike, the book has become a, uh, a device for us to convene, to sort of to cope with this ongoing injustice and to um, and to maintain a connection, we also exchanged letters and stuff, but there was a moment where he wanted to really publish things that he had written while he was in prison early on. And I think I was taking a very hard line position that by doing that, he was further endangering himself mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. opening himself to more harm in a situation where he was already in a maximum security prison. Mm -hmm. And the conditions of him, his imprisonment were already unreal. Like he was not allowed any sun. He was not allowed out of mm. his cell at all. He was not allowed any hot water, nor for mm. beverages, nor for like hygiene. He was not allowed books or timekeeping devices like clocks, watches. He was not mm. allowed radio. He was not allowed TV. Um, wow. He was not nothing. Allowed, no, and no pen, no paper, nothing. Wow. And so I think in these moments where a little bit of access would be made possible under these extremely extenuating circumstances. For me, the idea that then we would publish these fragments of his writings seemed to me to be a, an additional provocation in a situation where it was setting us back from us setting him free. We, yeah, we, we fought. <laughs> mm -hmm. So even through this, um, but yeah, we, this is this has always been, I think, the one point of contention between us, where I think mm. I, I think I err on the side of safety, and I, then maybe in contrast, come across as um, somewhat sort of conservative, right? Um, and he hates that about me. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say that, um, you know, in the example of his sister being able to leave the book behind after visiting with senators, has it helped? Yes. I mean, in some ways, well, yes and no. I mean, he's still in prison, so it's hard to say that it's completely helped in that mm -hmm. sense. But I would say yes, because there are moments where politicians know worldwide. Right, right. Um, and I mean, all the way up to presidents and mm. kings and mm -hmm. prime ministers and you know, in the US, in the UK, Germany, France. Um, and so there are moments of advocacy that are expressed mm -hmm. even within at that level of politics. And and not just for Ale. I mean, Ale sort of serves to be the, yeah, so the, the icon or the, the, sig right. the signifier for so many other people, both in the immediate sense of like, you know, friends and colleagues and acquaintances and peers in many different ways. But also Egypt currently has like an estimate of like 60,000 political prisoners. So wow. it's pretty extensive. So back home, he's just one of many. He's definitely one of many, but he's also very much the one. Hmm. Is he always on your mind? <laughs> yes, I also wear his picture on my, wow. on my watch. Right on the watch. Wow. <laughs> wow. When's the last time you were able to speak to him? Um, finally, his prison conditions have changed over the last year or so, and we write to each other almost on a weekly basis. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, we have a, well, a letter writing relationship. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I mean, I haven't seen him or spoken to him in a really, really, really long time at this point. Mm -hmm. 
That was Sarah Rifke, a dear friend of the Egyptian political prisoner Allah Abdul Fattah. Sarah Rifke is the senior curator at Virginia Commonwealth University's Institute for Contemporary Art. She was speaking with With Good Reason producer Lauren Francis. Support for this episode of With Good Reason comes from the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation. This is a charitable trust created by the will of acclaimed 20th century artist Joseph Cornell that honors the memory of the artist and his younger brother Robert. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aviva Casto and Lillian Bukowski are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast or to comment, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.